0: podcaster myself john and my friend chris talk about a couple of movies around a theme of our choosing chris how are you today
1: hey i'm doing great how you doing john
0: i am depending on so this is probably going to be coming out a couple days after we record it i'm either going to have been fresh off of a relaxing one night getaway with my missus or covid sickness uh will have potentially canceled it we will find (laughs) out uh so when you're hearing this uh I will either be in one of two very different states. So, you know, uh, I'm either good or bad, you know. (laughs) And if this
1: episode is a little loopy, it is because we are not doing this on our normal night. We're doing this a day earlier because tomorrow morning I go for my second vaccination shot and... Based on the experience of my wife, based on my experience with my first dose, I am probably not going to be feeling too good over the weekend, so I appreciate the flexibility and schedule, John, as I get vaccinated from the virus, and you potentially in 24 to 48 hours may be contracting the virus. It seems like a good trade-off from where I'm sitting.
0: I I, I do think you kind of have the better (laughs) end of the deal here. Last year, we did a Best of 2019 uh, podcast where we talked about some of our favorite uh, movies of the year, and for uh, this last year for 2020, we decided that uh, th- there wasn't enough things happening because of the pandemic to uh, to do a whole podcast about. Um, and so we ended up writing some pieces on the website. Uh, but with the Oscars coming up at some point in the future, I actually have no concept of if they've happened already or if they're coming they up are,
1: uh So we are recording this on Friday night, April 23rd. I believe they are in two days on Sunday night.
0: Okay, so oh, okay, so then by the time this comes out, the uh, the winners should have been announced, mm-hmm. uh, and so this felt like a chance for us to actually uh, do an Oscar episode specifically around the Best Picture uh, nominees for uh, for twenty twenty, and uh, this would be a chance for us to do what would be more or less a reflection, an ep- a proper podcast episode that reflects on on last year by talking around a couple of the movies that uh, were nominated for Best Picture. Chris, do you have anything you want to add to that introduction yeah, before we get started? I, I,
1: yeah, because, it, I mean, this, this selfishly helps me um, do what I've done for years. Um, I, th- th- this was kind of my topic to pick, and I'll just, as a little bit of background, I kind of grew up loving the Oscars, loving kind of the pomp and circumstance and the awarding of films. And it always kind of at that time, especially when I was younger and didn't have kind of the wide ranging access of the internet and, and, and things like that. It gave me kind of a, like a checkoff to say, okay, Hey, look, these films are films that I should be looking at. So, you know, when they're available to me, I'll start to check them out. So every year I kind of had for a lot of my childhood, a lot of my 20s and even some of my 30s, I'd always made it a point that when the nominations came out for best picture best actor, best director, I would go and I would seek those those films out obviously as time goes on um, at least for me, uh, the Oscars kind of didn't really mean what they used to you know, you start to see you you start to see trends and you start to see common themes and what's nominated and, and what's awarded and obviously as your your tastes change and, and, and you start to really kind of um if you're a film enthusiast or a cinephile or however you want to label yourself you start to kind of develop your own individual taste for what you're looking for they became less and less important to me um but with 2020 to your point John kind of being what it was a bit of a dumpster fire in terms of you know what got released what didn't get released how we both were able to or not able to kind of absorb films with the same um veracity that we used to. When the slate of candidates were announced, uh, it provided an opportunity for me to go, oh, you know what? For old time's sake, let's let's kind of jump in, especially since the pandemic being what it is and how it affected um, the film industry. I I think with like maybe one exception, all of these films were readily available on streaming because that was really the only distribution to use. Um, even now, I mean, we're at a point where it looks like the pandemic, I don't want to say the pandemic is coming to an end. I don't know that that's anywhere in our near future at all, but it's getting to a state where it might potentially be manageable enough for movie theaters to open and people to potentially go out and start seeing films with some regularity. I'm not there yet, even though I am getting vaccinated tomorrow my body is not prepared to do that yet. Um, So this was a good opportunity to go find some films I've been really interested in. And, uh, and as always have a spirited discussion with you about their merits, what worked, what didn't, and kind of how we come away from it. So that's all I wanted to add. (laughs)
0: That's uh that seems uh that seems like a pretty fair a fair assessment. I think that uh yeah, I th- my my own feelings about the Oscars tend to I, I don't think I've had maybe quite as deep uh, an appreciation for them, but like certainly Is there
1: is there though the same level of appreciation in Canada? Is there and I I I don't know that I that I know this. I don't know if there is a Canadian equivalent for Canadian
0: films or anything. Uh like I'm th- thinking of the junos but the junos are the uh the music awards uh i believe that it is uh i believe there was the genie awards uh that would have done that but it would have uh, wikipedia is telling me that it ended in 2012 so Mm. uh i'm guessing that's no longer a thing but no it's it's i mean i in the same way that like you know of your canadian rock bands from the 90s because they're on the radio and uh, but they also get played in the same way that like Uh, the the american bands do and so i knew both of them but like uh it's not it's not there's not enough nationalistic pride i felt like to really focus only on the canadian awards it was like i had um i had past relationships where you know they would they would throw oscar parties uh and you'd get dressed for that so like that's that's it's not. I wouldn't say it's meaningfully different uh, on the Canadian side. Well, then I'm happy that we're able to share <laughs> a small sliver of my
1: childhood together and talk about these two films, which may or may not, by the time you uh, hear this, have won some awards. I'm going to assume that they will win some awards. I'm almost positive both of these will be winning
0: awards. You know, if we were to uh, <laughs> if we were to talk about all of the movies, then that would statistically be true. Uh, that yeah, at least some of them would. We're well, only uh, talking about two. <laughs> So why don't we uh, why don't we start talking about the first one, which I believe was your pick, Chris?
1: Yeah. So let's get into talking about *Nomadland*. Nomad Land uh, 2020 film written and directed by Chloe Jiao. Uh, Frances McDermott, uh, another stellar performance by her. It's a weird film. It's based on, um, I'm looking this up now, the 2017 book Nomad Land Surviving America in the 21st Century by Jessica Bruder, which. Takes into account. So, I'll, let me just briefly say what the film is about, and then I'll, I'll I want to talk about how it contrasts to what the book it's based on is about. So, the the movie is about this woman, Fern, played by Frances McDermott. She um, is one of the final residents of this town called Empire, Nevada. Empire, Nevada was a mining town. It mined gypsum, and there's this uh, beautifully sad title card in the beginning that talks about the fact that um, when the mine dried up, um, the whole town kind of just went to waste, and it was... The, the actual entire zip code was erased from the post office. Um, this town had just kind of been abandoned and Fern who also in the town had lost her husband. He had died, um, a a while before she packs up what few belongings that she wants to take with her. She puts everything in storage and she embarks on the van life. Um, which is very popular around YouTube right now. Uh, but this is a very particular and specific type of van life. Um, she is a nomad and kind of travels around the country taking jobs here and there and grows to kind of find a sense of community with the other people who live this this kind of nomadic desert existence. Uh, the film is largely peopled, with a couple of very notable exceptions, uh, with... Um, non-actors and people who are very large in the kind of van life and nomadic community. Um, one of my favorite character in the movie is a non-fictional, non-actor, uh, Linda May. And the movie is just really about Fern's travels and her coming to contentment with her life and her future and herself. Um, there is a... Um, very touching and and interesting conflict that arises when she um, gets a sense of attachment to another nomadic dweller that she meets who's played by David Strathairn. Um, Again, you put David Strathairn in a movie, I'm instantly involved and ready to go. Um, But that's not really, the movie is not a romance. The movie is not a will they or won't they. The movie is about Fern and learning to let go um, of something that she is holding deep inside when everything else has already kind of let go and drifted away and, and, and and how the metaphor of this life in a van existence kind of complements that. Um, that's the story in a nutshell. It's beautifully filmed, beautifully acted. The, the the things that I find interesting is just off the bat, and one of the first things I wanted to ask you about, John, um, b- beyond just your general thinking of the movie, um, I quite liked it. It's a beautiful film. It didn't hold me as long as I thought it would. Um... But I mean performances across the board. It, we'll talk about Frances McDermott, I'm sure, and her performance. But the first thing I wanted to talk about is as I was digging into the movie and, and the background and the book specifically. The book is very much about a, what the movie is about in general, and that's the life of these people. But what the movie, re, but but what the book really focuses on too is. Um, that this community is very largely made up of older citizens and senior citizens and how companies and corporations, Amazon plays a big part of this film in some way, and Amazon is a big part of the book as well, how these companies and corporations take advantage of the fact there are are these older kind of... um, looking for that last stretch of their existence, you know, lives, looking for something to do as they travel around um, and they need these jobs to kind of get by. They are very transitory. So corporations take advantage of that fact very much. Amazon is um, particularly unscrupulous when it comes to taking advantage of these type of people for their workers. The movie does does nothing with that, and nor do I think it has a right to. But I think it's interesting to take a film that is fiction but with such a documentary approach to its style. This movie, in, if you didn't know any better, it might be a documentary about this woman, Fern, if you didn't know that that was Frances McDermott. Um, so I wanted to kind of ask you first, what do you think about the film, general impressions and and, and and thoughts? And really want to nail down kind of the documentary tone and what this film is trying to say. And if you feel this film or any film has an obligation to, to kind of bring to light these things that maybe what it's adapted by, what it's adapt, what it's adapting brings to light. Is there a discrepancy there? Does the movie have any obligation? Does it not? And just hey, how great is Frances McDermott in this movie, John?
0: <laughs> well, for starters, she's she's great, uh, but that shouldn't be a surprise because she's uh, she's usually pretty good in in most things. Um, I'd say. You know, the, the the Amazon thing for me feels interesting because just even on a production level, like for them to, I mean, I'm assuming that that was, those were actual Amazon locations that they shot in and that, uh, uh, you know, there's Amazon stuff that's featured in there prominently uh, and you would, and <laughs> if you were paying attention at all to the unionization drives uh, happening in the southern states uh, for some or is the amazon employees that were trying to get a union going a union drive going uh, you know the amazon uh, especially or never has had any chill um and certainly not uh recently um and so for for me where my head goes is around like what would it take for them to sign off on filming the movie uh, or allowing the movie to be filmed there um because that uh, you're right i think it does i mean i don't know about the book because i haven't read it but the uh, um as a place where she can go get seasonal work, it feels like there it, it occupies some place of importance uh, within uh, within the community, within the story that they want to tell. That you know, she takes up the occasional gig here and there, and one of those places that she goes to at least a couple of times is 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 the Amazon warehouse. And if they're actually filming there, what are the conditions for them to film there, and how are they? How is Amazon frame or? what does Amazon allow them to put in the movie in a way that how it frames how they come off? Um, it feels like, like, I think, I don't think it is, I think it's pretty easy to read into, uh, to read into what role Amazon would play in a community like this and how it both potentially enables that kind of work, but also, you know, certainly takes advantage of it as well. Um, but, and I and I think that, but without having to be super like direct and didactic about it, and if for no other, and 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 this movie feels like a very like it's it's thoughtful and it's deep, but it's also very gentle and slow, and and I think the things that we bring to what we think the movie is about or what it's potentially trying to say, I think it actually fits with the tone of the the rest of the tone of the movie that to be like, okay, we're going to have this stuff in here and you can watch it and be like, and come away with it thinking, yeah, Amazon is, you know, is bad, which is, shouldn't be a controversial opinion. Um, but it does. So in a way that is low key enough that, uh, in keeping with the rest of the movie that like whoever from Amazon signed off on them filming, there didn't, uh, didn't really, uh, pick up on any sort of, you know, Intent to criticize or, uh, you know, any of that stuff. Does that does that make sense?
1: It does, and it's an interesting point you bring up because I don't think, and I think um, Chloe Zhao isn't looking to make a film that is a commentary on that. I I think she's looking at something very different, and um, and I'm totally okay with that. It, I I I should note that I didn't come away with those thoughts. Right after seeing the film, it was after doing the research and kind of learning about the book and and reading about it later that I kind of came to some of those questions. But I think what's so beautiful here and what is really affecting in the film is that she is looking at something different. She's looking at, at this life. She's looking at this community and she's framing it against a woman who has experienced incredible loss and is at a stage in her life that, to be fair is not common fodder in the movie industry, right? Because that is not an age that's particularly popular. She's not in that, you know, um, 18 to 34 demographic that is so popular for advertising. Frances McDermott, I think, gives an incredible performance as Fern um, in her silence and in her facial expressions and just in her um, ability to try and persevere and seek for something that she can't quite define in the film. And I, I think that's what Zhao is really working toward is just painting this portrait that is such a common portrait for people, female or male. Um, about being at a stage in your life where you have suffered and experienced loss and how do you move from there. Um, sometimes the only thing to do is to move and to keep moving, um, keep going forward. I don't think of this as a travelogue I, I, as much as I do just a journey for self-discovery and the discovery is the discovery that to survive, you just need to keep moving forward. Um, and I think she does that beautifully here. Um, it's interesting to kind of think about Frances McDermott has had so many incredible roles and has had so much praise heaped upon her. When I talked about the fact that I'm pretty sure you know, um, the films we're going to talk about are going to be award winners at at the end. You know, I it, I, I think right now Nomad Land is the front runner for best picture and best director. Um, and if it does, it would be very deserving. And especially for Zhao uh, to be a woman and to be Asian, um, to have that distinction will be fantastic. I hope that happens. Uh, but man, Francis McDermott, I'm pretty sure, is going to be a shoe in. And what I really love about her performance is it's not a showy performance. It's not a vocal performance. It is so quiet. It is so still. It is in, it is in her eyes. It's in her face. It's in the quiver of her lips. Um, it's in the delightful moments where she is with Linda May, who again, Linda May with her weird going to have a place in New Mexico and you can come there and stay wherever you want. She, to me, lights up the scene and steals it every time she's in it um, to her frustrations when things go wrong and she gets a flat tire or she is terrified when someone knocks on her window because she's parked in an area where she can't stay because it is seen as a very transitory life. Um, It's, it it's, it's overwhelming in, in how it works. I think if there's a, a weak spot for the film for me, Um, And it's not even weak. It's just that as much as I love David Strathairn, you know, they use that as kind of the carrot on the stick to say, look, don't you want to come back to normality? Don't you want to have this life? Um, When it seems abundantly clear from the get out that that's not what's going to be destined for her. It feels a little to me like. It feels to me like a a little bit of an obvious ploy. It's one ultimately that she, of course, doesn't go for. That would be a very different movie. But it, I think, just by dint of so many films relying on the um, the old gentleman, you know, the quiet, caring gentleman who just wants to take care of her. Um, I've seen that film enough times to know that I'm a little bit tired of it. So that, that's the only part that as much as I love Strayther there and man, do I love Strayther. there? there's a wonderful scene of them sitting and eating and he drops food into his shorts. <laughs> it, it is such a natural moment. And just the way that she cackles as he kind of fumbles, cause he's sitting next to this woman that he obviously cares for and wants to look good. And, and, uh, he just kind of fumbles haphazardly. It's, it's such a, those moments are played so beautifully. Um, um, but it's still the weak point of the film for me. I don't know if you had any of those moments as well, or how did the movie as a whole kind of play for you?
0: I, I think that, uh, I, I think you, I think you hinted this before we started the recording that like, uh, that at a certain point it feels like it kind of loses a bit of momentum, um, which is funny for a movie that's all about never stopping and always going. Um, but because it's, uh, because if it's more like languid pace, uh, it's, and, and for a movie that ultimately is more about a, like her physical journeys never stop. Like there is not a, there is not a point at which she reaches her physical destination. Like this is more about like, the, the journey that she goes on is finally being able to let go of her, uh, her old life and her her old husband and uh, her old, their her old house um, and all that stuff, um, but it's in the context of a final shot that's like her still driving like she's just this is just going to be her thing. Um, I feel like the the David Strathairn, uh relationship, it feels, I I don't know I I, I kind of. I like it as it's as if as a thing in the movie for her to sort to sort of under to underscore like sort of what she's where she is at like his you can tell that he's interested in her um and she's not like she's not unfriendly like she's she gets along well on a at least on a superficial level with with most people um but he uh he's obviously interested in her in a in a deeper sense and she she pretty obviously is not not uh, she pulls away from it and and i feel like the um and and maybe if if there's a weakness to it i'd say that maybe it perhaps goes on too long because you get you get the point pretty quickly especially especially on like the second or third real serious interaction when he uh he goes to help or he first of all offers her some gum or licorice because she's going to, and, and, and makes a suggestion that she should stop smoking. Right. She's like, well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well that's a bit weird. And then follows it up immediately by trying to help her move her stuff and then drops a, a plate of her possessions, right. uh, of her plates. Like the only, like one of the only things that she has in the world and he just broke them. <laughs> and she, and he's like, oh, I'm so sorry, which sure he's genuine. But when she's like, okay, you need to go over there now. Uh, that was, uh, uh, you can't fault her for that stuff. No. Um,
1: And you know what? You bring that up now. That is a great scene because it is so much him (laughs) evoking, and maybe it is intentional, him evoking that like almost kind of Southern gentleman. I'm just trying to help completely full of good intentions, but It is so obvious from our experience with Fern that that is not what she is looking for and not what she needs. Um, That is a great moment. Maybe you just kind of turned me a a corner on that because of that (laughs) sequence.
0: Well, and I and I think that like for 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 the ways in which it's an obvious point of conflict in a uh, in in a movie that is not necessarily, I wouldn't define as being driven by sort of obvious conflicts um the, the the movie is kind enough to david strathairn that uh even as like as that they're that they sort of keep running into each other and I, and i think that like the the network of people like there's the there's the real life nomads and then the you know there's the movie, as as people travel around, like that, one of the things that I found a bit tricky to follow on the first time, and the second time, I just kind of tried to vibe with it, was like, where are people, and when are people? The sense of time and place, kind of, I mean, that's probably part of the intention right of them sort of like drifting right of them just being on the road traveling it's like you can you can there are subtle details in the movie you can use to mark the passage of time and place but it's not really commented on but theoretically these people are traveling across the country and uh they keep like running into each other which actually gets underpinned at the end when they're talking about when they're saying goodbye to one of their uh friends who passed away that like You know, we don't say goodbye. We say, see you down the road Um, because these people just sort of like come in and out of uh, each other's lives at different points. And people who show up for like one scene at the beginning show up a few like theoretically months and, you know, states later being like, hey, you gave me a cigarette. That was that was a nice thing you did, Um, which it, it, it helps to create a sense of uh it creates a sense of uh community in this sort of nomadic existence um and i joked weeks ago that uh, in the last or in one of the last episodes i burned my uh vagabond reference uh because i think that actually this movie is very cl- even though i think the nature of the characters and what they are struggling with and where they end up is very different but the the idea of like these communities, uh, these interweaving communities of people that sort of just like come and go throughout the film, um, in the path of our main protagonist as they sort of do their own sort of journeys and trajectories and stuff feels like the most, uh, the most interesting comparison I think to make.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, it's, it's funny too. Um, one of the things that I noticed and I I had seen this somewhere, um, I remember where I had read this or, or watched a video deconstructing the film, but um, one of the things that's interesting the way that they do the photography and the way that the camera rests when it's 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 outdoors and it's there are some beautiful landscapes that are covered as as Fern is walking around as they traverse kind of the southern um, the southwest part of the United States and compare that to there are two sequences where she kind of comes back to, you know, quote, regular life. Uh, she goes to... Um visit her sister in California because her van breaks down and she needs the money to help her prepare it. So she goes, takes a bus to see her sister and the way that that sequence is filmed when she's indoors. And then later, um, David straight there, whose name is David in the film. Uh, he leaves, his son is having a baby. So he goes with the son, you know, intending to just stay there temporarily and meet the wife and meet the child. And, um, She goes to visit and finds that he's settled there. And the way that those scenes are filmed, it's very claustrophobic. The camera moves a lot more. It's a little bit more shaky and a little bit more uncertain, as opposed to the grace of watching her drive uh, through this beautiful scenery or traverse through this desert, rocky area. Um, I I think Zhao does a, a fantastic job of letting the camera help convey the tone and the emotion of Fern in her different episodes when she's with David. And I, th- I think it's in Tennessee where she goes to see him there and it's in California where she's with her sister. Um, it's really, it's really interesting how she uses the camera to kind of tell those stories non-verbally. And, and I, I think it perfectly complements so much of, Francis McDermott's performance, which a lot of it is just done with a glance or done with a nervous twitch or just done with an aversion of eyes. It's really interesting to watch her eyes and where her eyes go during certain conversations. Um, those are the moments much more so than the actual story that stay with me, uh, when it comes to Nomadland.
0: Yeah, I think, um, yeah, let's talk about, uh, francis mcdormand i think to sort of uh sort of close out unless you have a lot more uh you want to talk about but uh the uh i think yeah, francis mcdormand it's interesting to hear you sort of give some context for the book um because uh unless i'm wrong about this i believe that the original one of the original ideas for the film was to have francis mcdormand play like Basically, play the uh, Linda May, I think it was, yeah. or to do a version of that character, and uh, in more and so, if that's true, then it feels like the maybe the original idea was to maybe dramatize uh, the the events of the book specifically, um, and then at a certain point they retooled the idea to have Frances McDormand play a character that's probably closer to herself, um, and. And so, at that point, the movie is not necessarily about dra- dramatizing the events of the book. It's more like let's put Frances McDormand into this community, um, <clears throat> and and see what happens. So it's um, putting her into that environment, that community. Which, when you get, you know, when you set it against the, the 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 all the details, like the the you know, working at Amazon or working or having the real life nomads with them, and having Frances McDormand, uh, you know try to do something that's much more reserved let's say like uh not that she's not acting it just feels like she's trying to uh she's definitely not her character in say burn after reading uh for example <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: no i agree with you i
1: think um and it's interesting you bring up i i, I wasn't aware that uh that was potentially going to be the case with the film, but when you bring up the Amazon sequence, for example, um, and that's kind of where a lot of the documentary feel comes in for me, a lot of it feels like they took McDermott, put her in a scenario, like with Linda May, because that that's her and Linda May at Amazon, talking to people, and it just seems like they're just filming the stories, and it's just much more, hey, here's my friend Francis, you know, She's going to be working here for a little while. And, and you know, as employees do, you get together and you share stories. I think they start talk, talking about their different tattoos and they start talking about things. And I, I really love the naturalism of those moments. I think they help really balance some of the more narrative heavy pieces of the film. Uh, and you can't do that unless you have someone of McDermott's... Skill and and ability to read a situation and just flow with the situation. It's definitely not a burn after reading performance or or any of her Coen Brother performances. But um, it's just so powerful, all all the same. I, I I find it to be like one of her best performances because of how understated and how much of a conduit of a performance it is, as opposed to a force of nature performance like some of her other things have been
0: yeah i think that uh yeah it's she she definitely drives the movie but without uh but without sort of um standing apart from the environment that is set up for her like she she's fully in the environment it feels like she's fully in the, the 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 world of the film uh driving it from within as opposed to like you know drawing extra attention i suppose to to her performance and stuff um and uh, i there is a specific reason why i brought up uh, uh dropped uh, some koan references to her previous work did you know that there is a specific Cohen brothers reference in this movie
1: i don't know that i do but if you remind me maybe i'll remember it
0: so there is a scene at a restaurant where uh david's son uh, comes to track him down and says, hey, we're going to have a baby. We want you to come home with us. And I didn't catch this the first time, but the second time I was watching it, I was listening to it on headphones and you could hear a song playing in the background. Oh, no. And it's the song Tumbling Tumbleweeds. <laughs> uh, and uh, and my first thought was, wait, where do I know that song from? And then I immediately came up with, it's in the Big Lebowski. And then t- two or three Google searches later, turns out, francis mcdormand is married to joel well, cohen yes. so i was like oh i, I see i didn't know oh, that didn't part know that? but i was like no uh but uh but as soon as i saw that i was like oh that's that like it i would have assumed that that was a reference anyway just because she works with the cohen brothers but then when i saw she was married to one of them i was like okay well yeah that's 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 that that can't be that can't be a she's married to
1: joel cohen yes <laughs>
0: And they yeah, and they and, and and it's and it's quietly playing in the background, so it's not obvious. It, it, like like most of the rest of the movie. It's not a it's not a big uh brashy thing, but I I, I heard it and I was like, oh that's that's cute. <laughs> that's awesome.
1: <laughs> I did not know that. I wanna throw you one more thing. Um because I had mentioned in the beginning just about kind of my love of the Oscars back in the, back in the day and my growing disillusionment as I kind of started to, you know, kind of pick out themes and trends as to what gets nominated and what wins. So I want to ask uh, you this as we kind of maybe transition into our next film. Does this feel like a traditional Oscar
0: contender to you? I'd I'd say that the 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 gentle st- the, the gently moving style and pace of it feels um uh more ser- it feels more serene I think than most uh uh Oscar- when you think of like Oscar bait type movies like it it the when I think of those movies I think of like things that are maybe not brash but like dramatic and important yeah. and you're going to watch these very dramatic important things and this feel this movie feels like it's uh, not trying to hit that energy
1: no and I and I love that about th- if there's if there's a takeaway about this year with the Oscars and the film industry in a normal year I don't know that we would have seen this film and definitely our next film be nominated for Oscars like they are. Uh, so if nothing, yeah, I mean, this is definitely, and I know it just, um, the time of this recording, uh, the Independent Spirit Awards just happened and this film did very well, racked up a bunch of awards. This is an indie, you know, this is an Independent Spirit Award film. This is an IFC film. Um, the fact that it it has such a huge push that it's doing so well, that it's getting all the recognition and the and at the Oscars no less, uh, it just makes me really happy and it's going to make me doubly happy when we talk about our next film. So I think if we're good here with the Nomadland uh, talk, what Why don't we jump into your pick, John?
0: Absolutely. Let's do it. Our second movie for tonight's episode is going to be Sound of Metal, uh, which is directed by Darius Marder and starring Riz Ahmed, uh, along with Olivia Cooke and Paul Recy. Um, Sound of Metal is a movie that is about a uh, drummer uh, named Ruben, who is, uh, along with his partner Lou, uh, are a um, heavy metal duo that play under the name of Black Gammon, which, first of all, <laughs> great, is great name. name, love it. Cannot uh, recommend that name enough, and wish that they existed and had real music. I could. We should, to yeah, we um, should say that right off
1: the bat before you even go into the summary. This movie makes a metal band that feels more like a metal band than any other movie about metal music I have ever seen. This feels like a band that is probably on band camp right now with like six or seven releases that I need to pick
0: up. Yeah. Well, and, and and most of them are EPs or demos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, the, the the auth- like if you want to talk about the authenticity of, of Nomadland, this sound of metal feels like they really get the details uh, of the heavy metal stuff. Right. Um, but lest you, uh, lest you think that, uh, this is a movie about heavy metal, it really, while they get the details right, it really, it it really isn't. No. Um, Though I will say that uh, the, the inspiration for the, let's say the, the kind of life that they live and the, and the, the heavy metal duo stuff do come from a really good band called Jucifer. So if you hear, uh, if you watch the movie and are not familiar with Jucifer, but like the music, then you should just go listen to Jucifer because that's, that they're, they served as the sort of inspiration for, uh, the characters in this movie as a nomadic, uh, you know, a couple that go and play heavy music and tour around in the van that they live in. So, you know, uh, that stuff, uh, definitely drawn from some real world elements. Um, but yes, uh, Ruben is a drummer and he, uh, he plays a lot heavy metal with, uh, with his partner Lou and pretty early on he starts to, uh, lose his hearing. And, uh, his initial uh, reaction is to try and, uh, you know, find solutions that will uh, help him to uh, get his hearing back. That is sort of his initial goal is whatever we need to do, whatever money we need to raise, we're going to go and get it so that we can. Because the goal is only to just get the hearing back and then keep going on life as normal. Um, but. Pretty quickly, it becomes obvious that uh, he can't do that, and so he goes to spend some time uh, with a community uh, for uh, for deaf people, uh, where he can. Uh, and he eventually, you know, he, he basically does this on his own under the supervision of uh, Paul Racy, uh, and uh, and Lou sort of has to go basically leave him be alone for a while. And so this movie is largely about uh, Ruben coming to terms with his loss of hearing, and trying to both let go of his old life and to accept the new life, which if you want to talk about parallels to uh, our Nomadland, it's not just that they live in a van. It's that they, uh, uh, <laughs> it's that they're both going through some shit. So, uh, they live in a van down by the river, man. I, w- I was actually just watching that the other day and I hadn't seen it in years and it's still good. Turns out.
1: <laughs> Farley was a genius.
0: He most definitely was. um, I think that there's really two, uh, there's really two like obvious and wonderful things we need to talk about when it comes to this movie. And why don't we start with the, the titular sound, uh, of this movie? This is a movie. Um, I when we talk about the Dem getting the details of the, the heavy metal stuff, right. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I think you and I can both vouch to that because uh, of our experience with uh, going to see bands and, and and shows and that and clubs of that sort and that stuff feels real neither of us are hard of hearing and so we can't I imagine we can't speak to that particular uh, side of things but it does like, a significant portion of the movie is features a, a whole cast and c- a crew of, of people who are hard of hearing. And a lot of the movie happens in sign language. Um, and, um, and the sound, and, and again, it feels like it's, they're trying to get like the details right. Um, and I feel like the crew, one of the crucial details for this movie is the sound design as Ruben, uh, as Ruben loses his hearing the you know they turn on a a, a filter uh, on the sound mix and you everything gets quieter and and bassier and you can't really hear what's going on and then um and as he's experiencing these things you the audience are also like struggling and straining to hear what's going on because you can't either and it th- that's not the entire uh that doesn't happen the entire length of the movie they they very cleverly choose what moments to have Exist inside Ruben's head and have what movements t- happen um, outside of him. So you can hear, like, when he's drumming, uh, when he's sort of out by himself in his van and he can't hear anything and he can't hear any of the sounds that he's doing. So he just decides to go to his drum set and just beat the shit out of his drums. Uh, you can, at a certain point, it cuts outside the van where you can hear him going wild on his drum kit. And of course, no one can hear him because no one around can hear him. Um, and then uh, later, like I mean, the when he ends up getting his implants to try and restore something approximate to his hearing, uh, the 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 implants sound different, and it's un- and he finds it unpleasant. And the and for us the uh, the audience member, it sounds like they ran all of the sounds through like various glitch and uh, filter pedals to make it sound just complete gar- uh, like garbage, um, and. And, and of course, you know, it feels like the whole experience of the movie is accentuated by their incredible use of sound design. Even in the first scene when he's like making coffee and making a, a, a like a, a smoothie or something for Lou, like you just notice all of the specific attention paid to specific sounds for things that would things that you would take for granted sounds like just everyday normal sounds, but become very... Accentuated and meaningful in a movie about someone that loses their hearing. So, Chris, when it comes to the sound, like what what specifically stood out to you? Uh,
1: I mean, everything you said. Um, the, the, I, this is a movie that, to your point, it hinges on two things: it hinges on the performance and it hinges on the sound design. And I I think there are two great examples, one in the beginning and one at the end um, that you bring up. Um, I love the way that it starts with. Um. Uh, Ruben's routine he is uh so th- this this movie deals with a lot of other kind of things in the wings as well Ruben and Lou um uh were addicts uh he is four years clean now uh and Riz Ahmed we'll talk about the performance later I mean the dude is just built like a like a uh like a punk rock Greek God at <laughs> four years in and his day starts that this is a guy who drums like a beast all night gets up at the crack of dawn does a shit ton of exercises makes a smoothie and gets a cup of coffee and you know is there to wake up the love of his life and the movie luxuriates in the sounds of morning routine with the mixing of the smoothie in the magic bullet, with the percolator, um, with the sounds of a percolating coffee maker as the coffee's dripping down, with the quiet... Inside the van, you hear everything outside as he gently wakes up Lou um, and tries to be as quiet as possible. You hear the sound of a life. You hear the rhythm of a life in those moments. And um, when he very dramatically loses his hearing, it's funny. They don't go into details as to what happens, but he loses his hearing like in a matter of days. He goes from having full hearing to like, um, I think they say like he is lost. He only has 24 and 28% in each ear now. So in a matter of days, he loses almost 75% of his hearing. And when that happens, the night that it happens, um, he tries to do the same routine that we just luxuriated in. And to your point, the sound design is amazing in that it doesn't just lower the volume. It muffles it. It envelops us in a in a cloud. Everything is much more bassy. The frequencies are all wrong. Um, as someone who is nearing fifty and, and and has lost a little bit of hearing, I mean not to any extent like this guy has. I can hear perfectly well. I can tell you that like it's it's not that you lose volume, you lose frequencies. And this movie is be- impeccable at taking out. Those frequencies and making this sound happen. Um, So right in the beginning, it 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 latches onto that in a really impactful manner. Um, At the end of the movie, there's another sequence. So you mentioned, you know, um, this film is really choosy into when it chooses to be inside of his head. I love that that phrasing that you used. And when it's just using regular kind of ambiance and. And and sound like a typical movie. Um, after he gets his cochlear implants, um, they really do distort it. And it sounds like the the thing that I thought of when they start going through it was uh it sounded like someone on like a, like an old ham radio and like you're listening to a, a transmission from Europe in the 40s. It's super tinny, things come and go, there's there's a lot of static. Um That's how he hears, and when things are really close, it gets very loud and clipped and distorted, to your point, like pedals. I mean, there's a lot of clipping and distortion. Um, There's a sequence at the end of the film where, not to get too much into spoiler territory, but he's reunited with Lou in Paris, and it's a Lou that he doesn't quite recognize. They've had a lot of time away. Both of them have become different people, and uh, she is singing a duet with her father in French that... um, her fa- it's her father's birthday there's a party um and she's singing and it's beautiful um she has in the span of time kind of changed as a person and she's doing this very heartfelt Kind of broken, fragile piece with her father. There's a whole backstory with their, with the father, uh, beautifully played by. Uh, I'm sorry if I mess up the name, Matthew um, Amalric, who has been in a ton of movies. As soon as you see his face, you know who he is, um, and it's gorgeous. And the whole point of Ruben's journey is to continue the band, to continue to make the music that he loves. Um, So now we're hearing from the audience perspective, this gorgeous duet between voice and piano and the camera dollies and pans back to Ruben. And as it does, you start to go into Ruben's head and you hear the music as he is experiencing it. And it's terrible. The distortion and the frequencies are just mangling it to a point where it is almost painful to hear. And it's that moment where he realizes he can never go back. He can't go back to the life he has. And and this is the prelude to one of the hardest scenes in the movie, the scene where he has to confront Lou. And and he he doesn't even confront her, but he he makes the realization as to where his life needs to go from here. And uh, but you don't have that impact unless the sound design It's the sound design that gives the impact. It's not the performance. It's not the action. It's not the camera. It is the the going from outward to inward and how that sound design makes that impact. Um, You don't have. You don't have this movie without that. You don't have this movie without that attention to detail. And I would almost argue, except I'm not, uh, that that is the major star of this film.
0: <laughs> I mean, it, it's certainly like it's certainly a master class in here's why sound is important. I mean, which yeah. shouldn't be like a particularly controversial or even interesting thought, but like, yeah, like that movie. Uh, <laughs> I remember someone a couple years back posted a video where they took the the big metal scene at the end of the original Star Wars uh and somehow edited out the the fanfare and just had that scene play out with the sound effect like without well they had they put the sound effects in but they took the score out and the score ju- out yeah. yeah and how just absolutely like awkward and terrible it was Uh, because of course the thing that gets you that scene is the, is the, is the triumphal fanfare. Um, and this, this, although this is not, that's dealing more in score than necessarily in sound, but it's more or less the same idea, like using the audio component to really, um, to really just absolutely hit home, like what is happening in the movie and, uh, um, helping the performances, uh, or accentuating them rather than, you know, just sort of existing. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, and, and and if we want to talk about like, uh, we'll, we'll talk about what the last scene in the movie is and like, when, and it's meaning as far as, uh, for sure when we talk about, uh, where is but, uh, <clears throat> the way that he finally comes to his peace at a moment where he's, he's going for a walk and, uh, he's going for a walk down the street and hearing all the sounds of, you know, the 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 city around him and then when he finally like takes off the implants for the last time and just sits in complete silence and stares at the camera for um when he finally gets that stillness that he has eluded him the whole movie um it's just like you it almost makes you want to stand up and clap it's like that is a fantastic just absolutely stunning way to uh to end a movie <laughs> again, such a great <clears throat> ending. Yeah, specifically, uh, specifically off of the 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 way that the sound just sort of makes that moment uh, absolutely sing. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about let's talk about the performances. Riz Ahmed, like that dude's intense, man. Riz Ahmed is intense, uh,
1: and he is uh, man. That guy's a powerhouse. It is not what i thought the performance would was going to be it is very twitchy it is very it, it, it is i mean this is a guy who has been clean he was a heroin addict been clean for 4 years he and and what's interesting and and we'll talk about this probably a little bit more when we talk about uh, paul racy's role but he is a guy who has supplanted one addiction with another. And I, I, I think the film makes that clear. His addiction is the music and Lou, uh, his, his, his girl, because they are a far better thing than the heroin that he was ingesting. And, uh, you know, through everything that um, Ruben goes through, Ahmed just, he just nails it. He nails the trip. Um, he nails the... The um, the clinging, he, he nails just every moment of it. But I don't think he does it without um, Olivia Cook as Lou. One of the best things I loved about this movie was this could have easily turned into the type of movie where uh, their old sins catch up with them. And because of the trauma of his hearing and they had just had a tour set up and now they can't tour, they were going to work on an album. They're starting to get some recognition. One of the things that I love, which is like a small thing for metal nerds, is if you look inside the trailer, um, they made the cover, they made the cover of Decibel magazine. There's a Decibel magazine cover taped up with them on it. And I just was like, that's such a great little nod to the scene. But, um, um, this could have easily fallen into tragedy has struck. They go back to the heroine. She starts to be a terrible, like, well, what am I going to do? And I'm going to do this And this movie does not go there. And I think one of the, the most heart wrenching scenes of the movie is early on where she does the right thing. And she's like, I'm going to leave you. You're going to promise me that you are gonna get on that goddamn you know van and you were gonna drive back to that com- deaf community center and you're gonna get help because that's what you need that's what's important not the band not the music not our love it's you getting better you know if we love each other that's what we do basically i mean that's not said in those words it's all in the performance of lou just pushing him away and forcing him to kind of go through that withdrawal and and say no you need to do this um the performances across the board are just fantastic here. Um, to the point where if I had a complaint, it's funny, I had a complaint and then the complaint kind of went away because I loved, the as soon as the movie was over, I'm like, oh, this movie was great. This might be my favorite movie of the year. And then I kind of took a step back. I'm like, you need to be a little bit more critical, Chris. You're going to talk about this on the podcast. There has to be some faults. And like my, my first fault was... Well, you know what? There's not a lot of conflict for him. Everything happens is good to him. Um, His girlfriend, even though kind of the end is what the end is, and we can talk about that, his girlfriend Lou does the right thing. She doesn't cling. She's like, oh, baby, we'll figure it out. And then something melodramatic or typical happens. She pushes him away and says, you need to go get help. Um, When he goes to the deaf community, I mean, he has maybe one weird little instance where he doesn't like fit in, but it's almost seamless. We're like 10 minutes later. They're like, you've made a huge difference to all these people, Ruben. You've just become an amazing person. And I want you to work here with us. And I was like, really, there was no conflict. This guy who's like a twitchy heroin addict who literally just became deaf and doesn't know sign language. We're not going to show any conflict to get him to the road to where he earns that. You've been a huge help to everybody. But no, I mean, so that was going to be my complaint. But the more I thought about it, this movie is so delicate in how it just kind of takes these little moments and doesn't dwell on those things. I'm sure those things have happened, but it instead decides to dwell on the small moments of connection that build into the offer that Paul Racy, as, as as Joe says, "Hey, you've really made a difference to these people. I'd like to offer you a chance to stay on here." It's the designing of a pornographic tattoo for uh, one of his friends at the community. It's the. Um, being forced to sit and learn sign language with a bunch of little kids and connecting with the one child who seemed to be borderline spectrum and having trouble and how he connects with him through drumming. Um, it's his, it's his you know, eventual victory as he does a sign language alphabet race with another kid and finally wins. They choose to, that was such a great moment. I
0: love <laughs> and that it, moment. It, it,
1: you know, and it's the contextualization of the first dinner scene where everyone is talking and you don't hear anything, but they're all talking and you just hear the thumping and the clattering of dishes as he just sits there and doesn't know what to do. And then maybe 20 minutes later, there's another dinner where he's fully integrated and they're all doing the same thing and they're all signing and thumping and having this in-depth conversation with no sound. Again, the sound design is, is the champion of the film. But it just, it's the champion of the film because it bolsters these beautiful moments. Um, and I can't find fault. And I, I don't know that another actor would have pulled off the intense vulnerability, the intense passion that Ahmed does in this role. I mean, he is, I've, I've seen quite a few films. Um, I haven't seen every best actor performance, but Dear God, his performance is one that in any other year of regular film distribution, he I don't know that he would be nominated. And I love the fact that this film was able to get such a voice and such traction that he's now, you know, a Best Actor nominee at the Oscars
0: there's there's something i wanted to circle back to that you were talking about earlier where it does feel like this movie like there's a version of this movie that could be tropey and cliched and just the absolute there's uh, an oscar-bait
1: vir- version of this movie and it probably stars sandra bullock i love sandra bullock but it probably stars sandra bullock
0: <laughs> eat that um, sandra bullock i guess <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but I, but yeah i think one of the things i like about this movie is like yes like he the 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 tendency for him to or when he at the beginning when he has his big outburst and gets super violent with whatever machinery or equipment he was using and he's just absolutely tearing it to pieces like this this seems to be foreshadowing some potential like abuse situations uh, um some domestic abuse between him and lou and she And although he doesn't turn his anger towards her, she you're right. She does make the right call, which is like, you know, we we need to big picture here. The most important thing is you being healthy and uh, you need to be you. You can't do that with us doing the stuff that we're doing now. So you're going to go and I'm going to leave again, not using those words, but that's the idea. And uh, as the. And what I like about the movie is that when he although he has that moment and you're worried that like this is where he's going to go, it doesn't actually go down what would be an obvious path for someone who um, like he has he has his if, if we're talking about his the his addiction being. Um, his old life, um, the music and the routine and, uh, and Lou, he does have his relapse moment where he, you know, sells stuff to, to pay for the cochlear implants. Um, but that, that, that moment of reckoning is incredibly gentle and, and, and heartbreaking uh, because basically once, uh, uh, once Paul, uh, once Joe finds out uh, he, he, you know he wishes him well he's like he he has a quiet conversation that's that's achingly sad but and and he and he and he tells him that like like he he tells him like i these these people are not don't see being deaf as a disability. Like they don't, like this is not a thing that they're trying to fix. This is people being in this community is about trying to, you know, fix your, fix your head, not fix your ears. And uh, by, and and by Ruben staying in the community uh, as this testament to someone who tried to fix a problem that is not meant to be, that is not a problem to be fixed. It, it creates a lot of problems for the community. So he asked them to leave, um, which is like, that this is the tough love speech, but it's like one of the most kindest and heartfelt version of that speech. And there's no histrionics. There's no like further going down. There's no like going all the way down the hole. He just like he gets it and he he leaves. Like it, it feels like for a thing. It feels like they avoid most of the traps that this movie could have made in, in becoming a much shittier version of itself. And let's let's
1: let's stop here. And clearly indicate this is the moment we are going to talk about Paul Racy as Joe. Yeah. <laughs> because if there's another performance that is equally as good as Riz Ahmed's um, as Ruben, it's Paul Racy as Joe. Uh, holy crap, that is a performance that will. I mean, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. It is a performance that breaks your heart. Uh, he is the he is the uh, leader of the deaf community. There, it is a community that is made up of very troubled people. Most of them are former addicts or or addicts. He himself is a recovering alcoholic who. Um, lost his entire family after I believe what happened was he was in Vietnam and uh, a, a grenade or something went off and he lost his hearing. Um, and it wasn't the deafness that made him lose everything. It was the alcoholism and stuff later on. And he's gotten to this Zen-like state and and he is the mentor for Ruben. And uh, it's just such a beautiful It is a forceful performance, but it is such a quiet performance. There are no histrionics, to your point. Um, That scene and then the scene at the end, which I alluded to a little bit, those are the two moments that just (laughs) completely break me as a human being. Um, And it's not so much... And it's all Joe. It's all Paul Racy, And it's all the end. I mean, he says everything you said about, you know, when he kind of... Doesn't he pretty much exiles Ruben because, you know, hey, you got these things and you don't understand we're here because not because we think of this as a as a disability, but your presence here is going to be detrimental to too many people. So you have to go. Um, That's done beautifully and it's done wonderfully. And uh, it's a great scene in and of itself where the scene becomes the scene is ruben leaves and it the camera just sits on joe for a minute and you see joe start to shake and you see his lips start to quiver and you see what this conversation has done to him after Ruben has left. Cause you've seen what it does to Ruben, Ruben. I mean, he's tearing up and he's getting emotional and he realizes what he's lost by doing this and that he's committed himself to this course of action and he leaves. And because Ruben is our main character, that's who we're supposed to be going with now on the journey. The camera will not let you do that. Um, and, um, Martyr, Darius Martyr does not let you do that. He focuses on Joe for like a minute. And it's it's the most heartbreaking scene in the film to me, to watch Joe slowly break down because of the connection he's made with Ruben. And it just is anguishing to watch. It is such an incredible performance. It is such an incredible role. Uh, Paul Racy also nominated for Best, Actor, uh, Best Supporting Actor. And uh, God damn, I... God, it is, it's, if you see this film and you watch that, you'll see why right in that one take, why
0: he's been nominated. I'm just trying to pull up a best supporting, uh, best supporting actor list. uh, And uh, Google is being terrible to me right now. Well, while you're doing
1: that, I will quickly just, just point out just so, um, I mean, there is a reckoning scene as well for Ruben and it's, and it's when Ruben kind of um, is, is, Later the night of the party, he's with Lou and and, um, they try to rekindle their romance and um, Ruben realizes there's a beautiful small moment that occurs where Ruben realizes that just like she did for him he now needs to do for her and let her go so that she can live the best life she possibly can. And it's uh, a, it's an equally heartbreaking moment um, to see on Amid's face as he comes to the realization that my whole life that I've pointed toward this moment is not what I should have been pointing my life toward. Like he just realizes that um, I do love just the, the circular nature of now, I am gonna do the. I am gonna save your life now, and I'm gonna save your life by letting you sleep and quietly getting up in the morning and leaving, um, so that you can continue down the healthy path that you have continued down. Um, It's such a beautiful moment because, again, to your point, I think if the best thing said on this podcast is when you kind of mentioned the lack of histrionics. There's no histrionics in this film. I mean, there are quick, you know, moments of rage, but that ending scene could have been a whole thing with just, I have to let you go. I have to, you know, it could have just been so much and it's not, it's so quiet. Um, it's two people who had a beautiful relationship and ultimately the best thing they could have done for each other was to let each other go. And they both make that decision and they make it beautifully. Uh, and it doesn't go through so much of the bullshit that, any other film, especially a film that was aiming for an Oscar, would have gone through. I and, love that about this movie.
0: And, and and I'll and at the risk of uh, having anyone losing respect for any opinions I've ever expressed on this podcast, uh, <laughs> you saying the talking about the lack of histrionics as it relates to the ending scene, um, it is so subtle that perhaps on your first watch through it, you may not realize that. You may not catch on to the fact that what he is letting go of is Lou. That that, that this is in fact symbolizing the end of their relationship. You yeah. may just read it initially as he's found his peace. Um, not to say that that was me or, or anything, and definitely didn't <laughs> take you saying it for me to click that piece into place. Um, but that's just uh, I think let let's say that it's uh, a testament to how uh, effective the movie is at uh, at not sort of having to under having to like obviously underline its points so let's move on to our final segment for the evening which is our film recommendation segment chris what do you have for us today
1: as of right now the only other best picture nominee that i have kind of in the uh short-term memory of my brain we've actually been i've actually been doing a lot of watching of uh Films for our next episode, which we'll preview at the end of this. Um, so my recommendation is going to be Mank, the latest film from David Fincher. It is exclusive to Netflix. It is also, um, I believe nominated for best director, best picture, I think best actor, um, for Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz is, this is the story of Herbin Mankiewicz. I may have said Herman. it's Herman. Um,
0: it's late. And,
1: it's, uh, it's It's late. It's almost midnight at this point. Uh, and the writing of Citizen Kane, which is uh, arguably one of the greatest films of all time. It's not arguably to me because it is one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and the thing about the movie, um, I'll be honest, uh, I, I enjoy the movie immensely. I would not even put it in the same league right now as Nomadland or Sound of Metal. But... It does some really interesting things. So the movie is kind of a little bit about um, Mankiewicz and 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 the, the episodes and issues that prompted him to uh, write what he wrote for Citizen Kane. It doesn't get into the real kind of controversy and history of uh, who actually wrote Citizen Kane. Was it Mankiewicz on its own? How much of a hand did Orson Welles have in it? I mean, that becomes a part of it at the end because this is based on on real life. And it's based on the event of, um, there was an agreement that Herman Mankiewicz was going to write it, but wasn't going to get script credit at the last minute. He asked for script credit and got it. So had to share the Academy award for uh, best original screenplay with Wells. And then famously when, uh, given his kind of speech, he said, uh, how he made a an allusion to the fact that, uh, well, Wells wasn't in the in the room when I wrote it. That was famously the take of Pauline kale it, it has since been vigorously refuted. Um, Wells had a huge hand to play in not only the story, but the rewrites and, and, and the finished script. All that is neither here nor there. What this film really does that I really enjoy is... It takes the tone and feel of those 40s films. There are beautiful wipes and dissolves, and it uses a lot of the tricks that Citizen Kane is known for, deep focus and and uh, these kind of beautiful um, camera movements and uh, things like that. But it doesn't do it to replicate the feel. It doesn't do it to replicate a 40s film, even though, It pops like a 40s film. Uh, The dialogue pops, the the camera angles pop. It really does it to kind of comment on Hollywood and to draw a parallel to Hollywood in the 40s to Hollywood of today. It is... I think, if nothing, a lot of people have talked about this as kind of a love letter to the movies of the 40s. I think this is actually just the opposite. It's a scathing indictment of how shitty the Hollywood industry was back then and kind of what it did to people and how it treated people. Um, But it does that in a way that, especially for Fincher, is really kind of light and entertaining. It's not super heavy uh there's no like horrific moments um Gary Oldman is a freaking delight i mean the that dude can carry off some one-liners um i've had to i will not say why but i have watched uh, his uh, another film of his at least twice now in the last week to prep for our next episode i'll just say that i I'm, I'm very much in the bag for Gary Oldman uh he's great in this film uh is it fincher's best film no but It's really interesting and it's a lot of fun and it makes you want to go and watch Citizen Kane one more time if you're a film nerd like me. So for that, I'm happy that I saw it. That's what I got, John. Uh, Everything else has just been quick TV shows and stuff that we can't quite talk about yet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and and, and – i uh, yeah of, of the other best picture nominees the only one i've managed to see so far is is mank um but the one uh recently movies that i have been watching are uh it's a it's a short number of movies but the films of elaine may um and specifically i'm a, I'm a fan of the blank check podcast and they uh, during the month of april have been covering elaine may's four movies um and specifically the one i want to highlight here is the heartbreak kid um a uh a comedy with uh charles groden and uh is it uh sybil shepherd uh, charles groden just grade a top level piece of shit no one is as absolutely hilariously terrible uh as charles groden is in that movie um it is uh it's just an absolutely delightful movie and unfortunately due to some rights issues. It's not available legally anywhere, but it is on YouTube illegally. And so you can just watch it there and do that. Uh, Chris, it's always a fun time getting to chat with you. And, uh, um, I hope that, uh, you're doing well. I hope the shot for you, uh, will have already been a success by the time that uh, people are hearing this and that you're, uh, you've done your day or two off, uh, to recover. And, uh, Take care of yourself, my friend.
1: Same to you, sir. Um, I don't know that we have anything to plug right now. Um, I think last month you plugged your uh, cassette, just came out. Uh, I don't think we're really doing anything big right now. I don't have anything big going on, but I, I will say just as kind of uh, – a precursor uh, we are going to have a guest next month so it's probably going to be an extra long episode as we talk about monster movies so uh, that'll be coming up Uh, we've got some real interesting choices Um, when John told me his I was like oh that's awesome because I was thinking of that one and when I told him mine he's like oh good because I love that movie so uh, uh, we'll have a fun time uh, with our special guest talking about uh, things that go bump in the night next time so until then Hope everyone stays safe. Hope everyone stays well. And uh, as always, John, thanks for uh,
0: a great conversation. Of course. Take care, everyone. Bye.